WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the very first time, uh, this is a one-hour discussion over the only book God ever wrote, the Holy Bible. And if you have a particular question uh, that you're facing in your personal Bible study or life or ministry in your local assembly, if we can help uh, with counsel from God's Word, all you need to do is pick up the phone, call us directly. The number is 525-1859 locally, 525-1859. Our toll-free number for our internet listeners is 877. The call letter is WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live or you can simply dictate your question if you're more comfortable giving it in that fashion. We get a lot of listeners who are listening through the internet around the country and even foreign countries and uh, some of them have uh, sent in questions already this morning. Uh, Rick, I haven't had a chance to look at them, but go ahead and get us started unless we have a live caller waiting. All right. We had a dictated question just a few minutes ago. A listener would like to know, overall, how many apostles were there? They've heard everything from 12 to 14 to 19. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, there was, of course, the initial 12. Judas was a false apostle, which the Lord knew, um, but he selected him anyway because uh, God was going to use his disobedience and unbelief to bring about a sovereign purpose that God had dictated. Uh, He was not a puppet. He responded to his own free will, uh, but nonetheless, he was chosen by God Almighty. Uh, So when he died and was hung, if you remember before Pentecost, when they were in the upper room, Acts 1 records a replacement apostle, so to speak. So he takes his place. And so that gives us back to the 12 number. And that 12 number is important because uh, God speaks of those initial 12, and they're called the 12, um, even when there was 11, uh, just for the simple fact that uh, that was the name given to them. And they play a very special role. The Gospel of Matthew highlights it in the uh, fact that in the future millennial kingdom, they'll be used uh, in a very special way, sitting on 12 thrones. And, uh, and even the Revelation mentions that in terms of their future role that God has for them. Uh, if you remember, God also later on in the Acts of the Apostles uh, clearly had selected some other men to be apostles, some that it's plain just from reading the Acts. Paul, of course, Saul of Tarsus, as he's called before he's converted, uh, the most famous without a doubt. 
Uh, but the Lord also highlights the fact that his half-brother, James, I say half-brother because Jesus, of course, had no human father, but the Bible does affirm he had other brothers and sisters. In fact, some of them, their actual names are given. One of them is James. And James, of course, um, there are different James in the Bible. One of the James, who was one of the initial 12, uh, he was beheaded, if you remember. That's recorded in the Acts. But he also had a brother, James, who wrote the book of James. And uh, the fact that he was uh, had a special appearance by Christ in his resurrected body is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 15, now I make to you, make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which I also received, and which you also stand, by which you are saved. If indeed you hold fast, he affirms what I've preached, unless your belief or faith is in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter. Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred at one time, most of whom um, uh, remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Here it is. He appears to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. So he appears to James, and then James is highlighted in Galatians as being an apostle. Uh, if you remember, uh, he writes in Galatians, let me pick it up in verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. He says, um, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, namely Jews, uh, for he who effectively worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effect- effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me the right hand of fellowship. And so he mentions, of course, these men by name. And then a few verses later, he calls them apostles. Now, this obviously is not the James that is referenced uh, earlier in the Acts of the Apostles, who by this point is already dead and beheaded. Uh, This is James, the half-brother of Christ, who is also called an apostle. So that puts the number at least at 14. And then in the Acts 11 account, there's a little debate over Barnabas, whether or not he was an actual apostle, or if the term apostolos was being used in a non-technical fashion. If it's used in a technical fashion, then it's it brings the number to 15. Uh, but the word apostolos can be used in a non-technical way. Now, our English Bible usually distinguishes the non-technical use by simply translating the word apostolos, not as apostle, though it's the exact same word, but um, as messenger. And so Epaphroditus is called an apostolos. Uh, He's called an apostle to the churches. He's not an apostle in that he was literally selected by Christ like the 12 were, like Saul or like James, the half-brother of Christ, were. Uh, He was not one of the 12 and that he did the signs, wonders, and miracles that only apostles could do like James, the half-brother, and and Paul or Saul of Tarsus prior uh, were able to do. 
Um, he was just a messenger, a sent one. And that's literally what the word apostle means, a sent one. And so they're sent with a message. And so uh, if uh, indeed Barnabas is more than just a sent one, and interestingly, most of the English Bibles don't translate it as messenger, but as apostle. Now, they don't have much choice because he's numbered here with Paul. And so that is a uh, theological call. Um, and if uh, indeed uh, Barnabas is one of the apostles of that stature, then there's 15. So there's 14 or 15. Beyond that number, no one has ever uh, thought that there were more than that, except people who are untrained in the scripture, scriptures who've made people like Epaphroditus and others when it's clearly a non-technical use of the word to be on the same level as Peter and Paul. Well, this person had said that the reason they asked uh, whether it was they uh, were saying 13 or 14 was because they thought that the qualifications were that you had to have seen the risen uh, Savior. And That's they, right. And so they said, well, Judas never saw the risen Savior. Yeah, but he's still an apostle. Um He's not an apostle, obviously, in the same stature because he was a false apostle. So you could certainly argue from the fact that he never saw the Lord Jesus in his resurrected body. He was not able to perpetuate that office as a true apostle. But he is called an apostle in the Gospels. So it's a fine distinction, but it's a good distinction that you make and that the continuance of the office, if indeed someone had been selected by Christ, as Acts uh, 1 indicates, they had to have seen the risen, resurrected Lord. Mm, All right. Very good. Ashley from Bluffton writes, I am a 28-year-old female and I've been a Christian for five years. I listen to Joyce Meyer and find her teaching to line up with the Word of God and can personally relate to her studies. Through her testimony, God has changed her life in such a tremendous way and has richly blessed her and others through her ministry. It certainly appears that she produces good fruit, and the Bible says we will recognize them by their fruit. I truly believe she has a right heart and loves our Lord and Savior. I often worry about her teaching because she is a female minister. I have prayed about it but have not received an answer yet if I should stay away from her teaching or if she could be a false teacher. My biggest worry is being taught by a false teacher. Is it best to stay away from famous preachers and teachings? Can you please give me your insight? Well, let's just start with an issue that you raise. You raise that she's a female preacher slash pastor. So you know right off, if you take the Bible in its plain reading, that she is in violation of the Word of God. Certainly there are passages that people use and abuse to justify women pastors. Probably the classic text would be found in the book of Galatians, where Paul is speaking of our equality, uh, not in terms of the roles that we play, but in terms of the salvation blessings that we share. And unfortunately, sometimes people use verses out of context, like Galatians 3.28, where it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, um, listen, uh, that is not an endorsement for women being pastors. What he's talking about in the thing that highlights the need to even raise this issue, if you remember the book of Galatians, is the fact that 
uh, Jewish people tended to look down on Gentile people. And one of the things that uh, Paul underscores in his teaching is that the dividing wall between Jew and Greek has been removed. And that though Jews were playing a very special role under the old covenant and will play a very special role in the future once again in the church age, the dividing wall between Jew and Greek has been totally removed. And so we are one in Christ Jesus. And so I don't have any more uh, spiritual benefits uh, as a male than a female does. And this verse, of course, is used to justify everything from women pastors to homosexuality. Um, lay that aside for just a moment. You have some clear teaching and a number of other passages that affirm that women can't be pastors. Uh, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then he gives his reasons and he makes it very clear that this is not some cultural argument or some geographically specific argument like a problem that Paul that Timothy was dealing with just say in the church of Ephesus where he was one of the key leaders but this is a timeless principle and so to build his case he goes back to the order of creation and how the fall unfolded then right after that remembering of course that the chapter and verse divisions are artificial he goes on and he gives the qualifications for the office of overseer or bishop or uh, elder or pastor, words that are used interchangeably. And he gives some very clear, specific male qualifications, which you would expect in light of what he just said. So number one, she is either uh, untaught in the word of God, Joyce Meyer, by assuming the position and role that a man is called to play. And women play very special roles in the body of Christ. And by the way, there are some good women who have the gift of pastor teacher because the gifts of God are given irrespective of gender, but who do not serve in the office of a pastor. And there's a distinction that the Bible makes in the word of God between the gift and the office. Again, Laying that aside for for just a moment, she's either deceived or untaught uh, when it comes to just some basic theology. And two, she becomes, in my opinion, a negative model to women because while men and women are equal, as Galatians 3.28 affirms, they play different roles in the body of Christ. There are some roles that are unique and special to men. There are some roles that are unique and special to to women. It's not a matter of better. It's not a matter of equality. It's a matter of different. Whether it's in the physical realm, I can't nurse a baby or deliver one. God made us different. Um, and he made those differences, whether it's in the roles that we play uh, in the church or in the family or whatever realm you can think of, the roles that we play are different because God has different purposes. Beyond that, let's just say for the sake of argument She was not in violation of teaching and exercising authority over a man. Uh, Let's just think about her theology for a second. And you raised kind of an interesting question. You said, well, you know, I look at her fruit and I see good fruit. Now, let me just say this is not directly in reference to her, but it's a principle that we need to understand. Because uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul addresses the Corinthians, because there was a minority who had followed some false teachers, the majority rejected them. 
Uh, but he reminds some of the Corinthians that such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Of course, these false teachers who had entered into the church said Paul was a false apostle. And so Paul defends his apostleship here. Uh, and really, first, in his first letter to them is in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And so most of the people responded to that, but there was still a minority of people within the Corinthian church who had not. And so Paul is reminding these people who said he was a false apostle, they are actually the false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. In other words, don't be surprised, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds. So my point is, is when you look at fruit, you got to look very carefully. You have to define fruit as the Bible defines fruit. And one of the aspects of fruit as it's defined by the Lord Jesus is in terms of a man's teaching or, for that matter, a woman's teaching. And that's one of the truths that he highlights in in Matthew's gospel when he says you will know them by their fruit. And later when he mentions it in the gospel, it's in reference to their teaching. So forget again for just a moment that she's assuming a role that God has given to men Forget for just a moment that she's created a model that a lot of women want to aspire to, like becoming pastors and traveling the country and doing what she does when God has given them a higher and holier and different calling. Lay aside all that for just a moment. Her teaching is uh, in great error in a number of different ways. She's a part of the Word Faith Movement, the Name It, Claim It group that goes back to Kenneth Copeland and all these other guys. Whatever you say, they argue, believing is yours. And so, you know, she teaches a health, wealth, uh, prosperity type of theology. Um, And she does not make any excuses for the wealth that she flaunts, whether it's her private jet or her, I forgot what it was, $17 million home or whatever it may be, and plus the big compound of other relatives' homes that she's built. And I don't know whatever happened um, a few years ago. Her um, uh, IRS nonprofit status was being questioned because of the way funds were being handled. But lay that aside. The word faith theology movement under Copeland and Hagen and Myers and others, it's just bad theology. It's not what's taught in the Word of God. It may sell in America, especially when the economy is booming, but it doesn't sell in other parts of the world. You can't take it to uh, places in Africa where people are living in immense poverty, Uh, but you can take it to some countries of the world and people will grab to it because who doesn't want to be healthy and wealthy? Uh, I, I listened to, I've listened to her a few times and I just, my skin crawls. She's so confused. Uh, she will often mix up justification and sanctification. And she'll talk about how Jesus, uh, made us righteous. No, he didn't make us righteous. He declared us righteous. And there's a big difference between justification being declared righteous and sanctification growing as a Christian. Um, She talks about that when Jesus said, it is finished, 
um, in one of her sermons that is often quoted online that he didn't really, quote-unquote, finish the payment for sin, uh, but that he he finished uh, a fulfillment of the Old Testament law, but that his work hadn't even begun, and that he, when he descended to hell, that that's when he paid for sin. And, he, and she talks about how Jesus was born again in hell. I mean, it's just so bad when I listen to her. But if people don't know their Bibles— um, she, you know, may seem like she's on target, but she's not. She's way, way, way off. And in my view, she's preaching and teaching another Jesus, not the Jesus of the New Testament. 525-1859 is the number, or you can email us directly at TBL for the Bible line at net. as this next uh, person has. Macy from Hardyville writes, Will the new Bluffton campus of Community Bible Church offer the Discovery class and other adult Bible fellowship classes? Well, we've just begun the discovery class. And the wonder of the discovery class, um, and some of you aren't sure what that is, but we do have a, by the way, a new campus that has just opened in Bluffton. Uh, it meets behind the BMW dealership there on uh, Highway 278. And you can see the BMW dealership, and there's a little road that goes down the side. And uh, right behind the BMW dealership is where Community Bible Church our Bluffton campus is meeting. We're one church, but we're meeting in different locations. And so I am over in Bluffton from time to time uh, on Tuesday nights. I won't be there again until July the 31st, though this week on Thursday night, this coming Thursday, I'll be here in Beaufort. And if you're here in our community and you're looking for a church home at the Thursday night meeting, I share our core values and Uh, answer people's questions. They come in, fill out a little survey, and among some of the questions I ask them, they have an opportunity to list some questions that they would like to ask me. And so I try to um, respond accordingly. Um, It's a great uh, meeting to come to as well if you have serious questions about whether or not you're really even saved or born again, because those kinds of issues can be cleared up in the uh, time that we have. And if you're listening to me and you're uncertain of your salvation, listen, there's nothing more important than getting that settled. And so uh, come on Thursday night here to the Buford campus. It's 715 and there is child care provided. But with that said, uh, the Discovery class is a 35 to 40 week discipleship course. Uh, Most of the people who join Community Bible Church come by conversion. And so we have to have a vehicle in which to ground them in their faith. And we do that through the discovery class. And it's set up on a rotating curriculum so that while it just started in Bluffton, they're on week three uh, over here in the Buford campus. I think they're like in week 18. So if you went weeks 18 to 35 and one to 17, you get the whole course. Uh, there's a couple of other groups of people in the discovery class. There are people who maybe have been Christians a long time, but no one has ever discipled them. A common comment I will hear when people go through the discovery class of people who've been Christians sometimes for 10 or 20 years, they'll say, I learned more in that class than I did in my prior 20 years as a believer. And the unfortunate reality is that if Billy Graham is correct, he said 90 to 95 percent of the genuine Christians in America are still babes in Christ. 
And I witness that all the time as a pastor because many times they've never been grounded. So that meets a need for those people. Some folks have been out of fellowship with the Lord and they need a refresher on the basics of how to walk with God. And then there's a fourth group of people in that class, and that's very mature, godly people who want to know how to disciple other people, beginning, of course, with their own children if they're married and God has blessed them with children. Um, This class will equip them uh, to do that very, very thing. So it just started on the Bluffton campus, uh, and they've only had two sessions. And so, yes, that's offered on Sunday morning prior to the worship service that begins at 11 o'clock. If you want more details on Community Bible Church, go to cbcabuford.org. Or what's the new uh, heading that we have? Well, there's a couple of ways you can get it, actually. If you go to cbcofbluffton.org, you'll get there, but also uh, communitybiblechurch.us. Okay, communitybiblechurch.us. That's a new... um... Uh, It'll all get you to the same place. All right, good. Thank you. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, Chris from Derry, New Hampshire, has a question that kind of is along the lines of uh, your first answer, but um, or your second answer, I should say, but uh, you can expound on it. Uh, Someone has told me, he writes, that you taught a series on leadership roles in the church, specifically, should women teach men? I would be interested to listen to that. Can you tell me the title so I can get it? Yes. What you'd want to do would be to go to a series I did on the pastoral epistles. Uh, The pastoral epistles, as they've been called for the last couple hundred years, are the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And so probably the best sermons would be to listen to would be from 1 Timothy uh, chapters 2 and 3 because he deals with it in a more detailed fashion than he does in his letter to Titus. But if you listen, uh, you can go online to our website. It's search the scriptures, all one word. Jesus said, search the scriptures. They speak of me. Searchthescriptures.org, not .com but search the scriptures.org. If you go to that website and click on first Timothy, you will see every single sermon I preached on first Timothy. And you will want to get the sermons that begin at first Timothy two, eight in between first Timothy two, eight and first Timothy three thirteen, I think I preached uh, four or five sermons and you can download those into your phone or iPad or iPod or your computer or whatever will work for you, and you can listen to those. Now, those particular sermons are not uh, visual. They're only on audio form, but they are available. Rick's clicking on it now. I don't have a computer in front of me, but he has one every week. And so here it is. Um, uh, What you want to listen to is beginning in 1 Timothy 2, the role of men and women in the church, part one, that's, I cover uh, actually verses 8 through 10. It's labeled 8 to 15. And then the role of women in the church, part two, which is 1 Timothy 2.11. The role of men and women in the church, part three, which is 1 Timothy 2.12 to 15. Then you want to listen further to um, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, where I deal with the office of elder and deacon. And in those sermons, I deal with the fact that um, women do not serve in the office of elder or deacon. So there's five messages there on the roles of men and women in the church that I think you would find extremely helpful. I appreciate that person wanting to search the scriptures for themselves. And and by the way, in the uh, first one, 
uh, or the second one. I can't remember. I preached that series over a decade ago. Um, I go through every single passage that people use to say that women can be pastors. I go through them all, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, And so I think you will find that helpful. All right, let's go to our live caller. We've got two on the line, and let's go to the first one. All right, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. We lost them. Let's go to the next line and see if we can pick them up. All right, let's see if you're there. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogue. This is Anthony. Hey, Anthony. I'm doing great. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I just want to let you know we got the best Sunday school teacher at CDC. Amen. <laughs> good. All right. All right. Question. A young man calling this line, he was asking about uh, the roles of um, women like pastors and teachers and stuff like that. Yes. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure I know for sure when you were speaking in reference, uh, talking about gifts of the spirits, you know, we have some people who had visited and were women pastors listening to that study on that on that part. But when it comes to women pastors and when they hear a minister of the gospel like yourself preach and teach on this and share with them what thus saith the Lord, the right way, you know, the right role that the people are supposed to hold. Right. Um, is it is it disobedience or pride, or is it the same thing that they won't change, or they won't listen, or or process the stuff? Is it pride, or is it just direct disobedience, or is it the same? And I'll listen to you. Well, it's a it's a good question. Is it pride? Is it disobedience? Uh, it can be any number of the issues. Uh, I've seen women in the ministry who have no plans to leave the ministry because it's very lucrative. And they are making a nice salary, and they don't want to uh, drop that salary. So there's nothing you're going to be able to do to convince them otherwise. And they are in the ministry for greed. Um, And greed, of course, uh, in being a minister is a mark of a false teacher, as the book of Jude and the book of uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 teaches. One of the marks that... Uh, characterize false teachers that they are in the ministry for the greed. Now, I'm not saying that's true of all women preachers, but I'm saying it's definitely true of some. Okay, lay that aside. Uh, Beyond greed, I think there's deception. Uh, There are some women who really think that what they are doing is a call from God. And so this is where they will typically argue They argue from experience. They'll say, well, God's shown me, God's spoken to me, God's called me. And either they've misunderstood that call or they've convinced themselves uh, beyond what the Scripture says. Remember, the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. And so I've met people who say, well, God's called me to divorce my spouse because he has shown me that Uh, I married the wrong person, and so I need to marry this other person. No, the will of God never contradicts the word of God. Uh, People say, well, I spoke in tongues and I had this experience, therefore it must be true. No, we never put experience over the authority of Scripture. Experience must always be subservient and in submission to the authority of Scripture. Uh, 
forget about tongues in terms of a detailed argument, though if someone is interested, they can call the church and I have an eight or ten page handout that deals with the sign gifts in the New Testament that walk people through what the Bible actually says about tongues. But um, whether it's here or not today, uh, and I address that issue, the fact is is that tongues, ecstatic utterances, were something that were common and has been recorded in human history for several centuries ever before the early church started. There were, you know, Greek and Roman um, cults where they worshipped different goddesses and gods where people spoke in ecstatic utterance. So you'd have to admit that all ecstatic utterances obviously is not from God. And so with that said, some people say, well, I had this experience. Well, listen, I've, I don't have enough uh, fingers and toes to count the number of individuals that I've met who have, quote unquote, spoken in tongues who have no idea whatsoever what the gospel is. Now, if spiritual gifts are only given to those who are born again, and if to be born again, you must first understand the gospel, because the New Testament plainly teaches that understanding precedes conversion. You can be wrong on a lot of things in your theology, but you have to understand some basic things to be saved. You have to know you're a sinner, that you're bankrupt, that there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to earn or merit salvation, that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone by his death, burial, and resurrection. If you don't know that, I don't care how many prayers you've prayed or how many aisles you've walked or how many times a preacher has baptized you and said you were saved, if you don't understand the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection plus nothing is the only way to save you, then you haven't been saved. And yet I meet these people who don't even understand what the gospel is, and yet they'll tell me about how they've spoken in tongues. Well, spiritual gifts are only given to those who are born again. And so Again, that's obviously a false experience because it doesn't come in line with Scripture. And in so many of the charismatic slash Pentecostal movements, and there is a distinction which I run through in the course on spiritual gifts between a charismatic and a Pentecostal, but in both camps, they teach people to prime the pump. They'll say, well, just say these words over and over and over again, and after a while, you'll be speaking in tongues. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, you don't have to prime the pump. God gives gifts as he sovereignly wills. So there's a lot of confusion. And so bringing it back to women pastors, there are women pastors who say, well, God's called me. Well, he hasn't called you to do something that's contrary to his will. And the word of God plainly dictates that this office is for men. And again, it's not because we're better or more spiritual. It's because we're different and God has different roles for men and women. And there's purposes behind that, which I cover in these five sermons if someone really wants to truly study it. They'll say, what about Deborah? What about Philip and his daughters? And I go through every passage that people use to try to defend women pastors. So um, is it pride? Well, I can't judge the heart. You know, uh, it could be. Uh, we make a lot of decisions out of pride, and sometimes people uh, have made a decision that they thought was right and later discovered it was wrong, and they were too prideful to say, you know, I was wrong. I misunderstood the Scriptures. And it takes a lot of moxie for a lady who's been a pastor to stand up in front of her congregation one Sunday and to say, you know, I—, I God called me, but he didn't call me to be a a pastor. He called me to minister to women, to women and children, 
to be a part of his great commission, to be a mother, to as an older woman, to teach younger women. But I misunderstood what he was doing in my heart. I mistook what God wanted to do to bring me further and deeper and to serve him more faithfully. I mistook that for being a pastor. It takes a lot of guts for a woman to stand up in the pastor in their in her pulpit some Sunday morning to say, you know, I misunderstood the will of God and and, and let's uh, let's exi- let's um, l- let's look to find a male pastor who can lead our church. All right, five two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven W A G P nine eighty or email us at tbl at wagp dot net. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes. Hey. Good morning, Pastor. Yeah. Thanks Question. for calling. Simple. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering if you had any books that you would highly recommend for Christians to read, or even say that there are some must-reads for Christians. Um, are you a new Christian, or have you been a believer for a long time? About a couple of years. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's. Um, again, I'm, I'm. I'm a firm believer in people having a good grip on the basics. And so um, many times, most of the problems that a pastor will encounter in his office when he's trying to help Christian people, almost uh, 98% of the time, it goes back to a lack of understanding of the basics. Um, So there are some good series like the 10 Basic Steps to Christian Maturity put out by Campus Crusade. Excellent set of Bible study books. little workbooks that are going to get you to look up verses and answer questions specifically as it relates to a particular verse or passage in the Bible. There's a series done by the Navigators uh, that's called Design for Discipleship. Uh, That's a seven-book series. And again, I think the blessing of doing some of what's called inductive Bible study. Inductive Bible study is where you have... Um, someone who has looked at a passage of Scripture and then they've created some questions from that passage of Scripture that they want you to ask. And the blessing of doing some of those, especially early on in one's Christian life, is it becomes a, a tool to them to help them to learn how to study the Bible for themselves, where they can become a self-feeder of the Word of God. And so sometimes people will hear me preach a passage and sometimes, you know, just a couple of verses and I'll spend a whole hour on it because I usually preach for an hour and they'll say, how did you get all of that out of the verse? And I, I see it now. It was all there. It was, but my, I just kind of read past it. Well, again, that's where some learning to study the Bible deductively, uh, where you use some basic uh, methods of, um, you know, observation interpretation, and application. Uh, People say, well, when you study the Bible, what's important is, what does it mean to me? No, that's not true. Uh, What's important is, what does it mean to the original audience? And when I understand through the observation process and the interpretation process what it meant to the original audience, then I can ask, then how does it apply to my life? What does it mean to me? Um, and sometimes people go right to the third step without doing the other two. Dr. Howard Hendricks has written some great books on Bible study methods. And so if you just Google Dr. Hendricks, any books that he has written will be excellent and extremely helpful 
uh, to um, any believer who wants to seriously study the Word of God. Dr. Hendricks taught at Dallas Theological Seminary for 50 years. He just went home to be with the Lord. Um, He was a great man of God and influenced the lives of thousands of people, many of the people that you listen to on this station. Uh, Tony Evans, Carl Brogy, Erwin Lutzer, David Jeremiah, we all studied under Dr. Hendricks. We all went through the same basic courses that Dr. Howard Hendricks taught uh, in terms of Bible study methods. So those, those would be some great books to have. I think to have some basic tools in your library would be also extremely helpful. Every Christian needs at least a concordance and uh, maybe a one or two volume uh, Bible commentary. Uh, the one I always recommend, people often ask me, well, I'm studying the Bible and sometimes I have questions. I wish I had just some ready reference guide and I'll tell them to get the BKC. That stands for the Bible Knowledge Commentary. There is a Old Testament volume and a New Testament volume. So that commentary on the Bible is in two volumes, one on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament. If you buy them in a Christian bookstore new, if you buy them together bundled, you can usually save some money. But since they've been out since the 1980s, you can go online, half.com. That's the eBay side of used books, and I'm sure you'll find them for a fraction of the price that you'd have to buy them brand new, and you're getting the same book. So that would be a good tool. Some of this software is now bundled. Uh, I, I mean, some of these books are now bundled in good Bible software. And people often ask me, what do you recommend? And I recommend a a Bible software called Logos. And there's like all these different levels of Logos that you can buy. Um, If you buy one with a lot of Greek and Hebrew tools and you don't necessarily know Greek and Hebrew, it may not be as helpful to you. But there's different levels that you can buy. But even in the most basic level, you're going to get about $1,000 worth of books for a couple of hundred dollars. And things like the BKC, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and a number and host of other good basic commentaries and tools. The good thing about the BKC is behind each book of the Bible that you read, at the end of a book, there's a bibliography for that book of the Bible. So Romans, say, might be covered in, I don't know, 30 pages, say, in the BKC, but they'll give you a page at the back of their commentary in Romans, uh, that will list maybe 20 or 25 works. Um, and you could buy just one volume just in the book of Romans. You can buy multi-volumes just in the book of Romans for someone who wants to delve deeper. Uh, there are some books that I do recommend. Uh, if someone goes to Community Bible Church to our resource center, there is a whole rack of books that I say these are must-reads for believers. So if you go to the resource room at Community Bible Church, uh, ask for the must-read list, and you'll see them there on the rack. And there's about 15 or 20 books that I think are really extremely helpful. I appreciate that question. Is Knowledge of the Holy one of those? Knowledge of the Holy is an excellent book by A.W. Tozer. Uh, that is not on the list as such, but it is an excellent read. I do have J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Um, some people don't like Knowledge of the Holy because Tozer at the end of his life bombed, but lay that aside. He was a fine man, and um, I'm not a five-point Calvinist like A.W. Tozer was, uh, but still he, he did a good 
good work in that in that book. Um, I say bombed. Uh, he just he didn't bomb like in terms of morally or anything like that. But he went into just kind of a deep depression and uh, just kind of checked out of life towards the end. And uh, but still, you know, he was a fine man. And that there go me, but by God's grace. And I think sometimes uh, men of God that have been greatly used, like Tozer. They have a bullseye on their back, and Satan wants to bring them down or discourage them or depress them. So he never, like, you know, violated the moral code of God or anything like that. But he did, uh, he did sadly uh, go into a sense of despondency towards the end. And so some are reluctant to endorse him, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I think he was a great guy. All right. Uh, speaking of books, our next caller would like to know if you have ever heard of the author named uh, Gary DeMar. He authored a book entitled Building a City on a Hill. And our listener is not sure about some of the things she has read about him. You know, I don't know that particular book, Building a City on a Hill. Uh, I know who DeMar is. Uh, he's uh a Reformed theologian. He's into Reformation theology, as it's called. Um, he actually, um, interestingly, we debated a lot of his works when we were at Dallas Seminary, um, when he was beginning to crank out some of his early works. Um, but I, I don't uh, buy some of the... Um, some of the things that he espouses in terms of Reformed theology. And Reformed theology is kind of like the word charismatic. I preached a sermon on, I think, the 25th anniversary of Community Bible Church, or maybe it was the 30th, I don't remember. Um, Maybe I did it twice. (laughs) No, I know when I did it, I did it on Reformation Sunday. And I uh, talked about the solas of the Reformation. And so historically, if you believed in the solas of the Reformation, you believed in, quote unquote, Reformed theology. But today, the term Reformed theology has taken on a lot of other different meanings. Basic to it is that there's no distinction between Israel and the church, that God has done with national Israel, that the church, the body of Christ, has replaced permanently national Israel. And... um I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong. Um, I think it's error, um, along with some other things that some of my reform friends teach. And I love them and I respect them, so many of them. But I just, differ, I, you know, I don't believe that Jesus just died for some people, as a five-point Calvinist would teach. And there are some fine men who have taught that. A.W. Tozer, we've mentioned. J.I. Packer is a five-point Calvinist. Um, he wrote a book that dealt with the doctrine of limited atonement. Um, you know, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think Jesus died for all people, uh, irrespective of uh, whether or not they received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, where some would argue he died only for the elect. It's a minority view in the history of the church. It's always been a minority view and will be continue to be a minority view. And when I teach the latter part of Romans 8 and into Romans 9, we're going to delve in these issues in great, great, great detail. So uh, if you have questions along those lines, uh, hold on. We're coming to them, and there'll be some resources that I think will be helpful to you. All right. George from Kisumu, Kenya writes, um, I'm a born-again Christian who lives in a remote part of Kenya, how can I help build our young but poor church? Although the house of our Heavenly Father is rich in faith, it is poor in facilities. 
Well, I'm going to try to respond to this one personally. You know, I I get tons of questions, and I I tell people sometimes, they'll say, well, you didn't type me out an answer. And I said, listen, if I had to type out every answer to every question that comes in from all over the country and other foreign countries, that's all I'd do all day to give a complete answer. But I can talk a whole lot faster than I can type. And and so, but I'm going to respond to him personally since he is a pastor, and I usually respond to pastors personally. Um, in either case, uh, your perspective is good that you are rich in faith. And there are countries of the world where a lot of um, God's people have little in terms of the world's resources. It might be that you would want to partner with uh, another church. I'm going to India, uh, I think, later in this year. There have been a number of pastors who have been contacting me from India. And they're in an area of India that is extremely poor um, and as I did a Skype call with one of them last week, I reminded him, I said, look, it doesn't cost anything to share the gospel. Uh, you don't need, um, even a printing press. It's nice to have a booklet that you can walk people through. And I, and I sent him a couple hundred in our booklet. Would you like to have God as your friend is going to be translated, uh, into Hindi, uh, that particular dialect of that's spoken in India uh, but I said, you don't, you don't need a lot. If you look at the early church, they had no radio, no television, no internet, no printing presses, um, you know, no copies of the Bible they could give people. Most of the folks were not from wealthy means, though there were wealthy people in the early church. Uh, they had no seminaries, no Bible colleges, but in the words of Dr. Luke, they turned the world upside down. And so the fact that your church is rich in faith is wonderful. And it might be that God would use some American church to partner with you to help uh, you with some needs that you have. Mm, All right. Our next caller would like your opinion uh, or would like you rather to address the office of prophetess and the office of deaconess. Well, um, there's not an office of deaconess. There is, again, the use of the word in a technical and a non-technical sense, much like with the first question I think that came through today concerning the word apostle. There's a technical use that refers to a literal apostle, and there is a non-technical use um, that refers to someone who's just a messenger of the church. And so the verse that often people will use comes from Romans 16, and certainly I will address this when I come in our exposition of Romans to uh, chapter 16, I, I hope I get to it before we're raptured, but uh, we've been in Romans uh, a year in three or four months, and we're still just in the eighth chapter. But he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. Now, if you have the um, marginal notes of the New American Standard, it says deaconess who is a deaconess of the church, which is at Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matters she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of I myself as well. Now, in many languages of the world, for instance, when I go to Eastern Europe, and we're dealing with the Slavic language. All of the Slavic Bibles, whether it's Georgian or Ukrainian or Russian or any of the Slavic languages, all translate it with uh, the word diakonos, 
uh, not diaconus, the the the, um, the masculine form, but the feminine form here for deacon. Now the words the word deacon just means a servant, and clearly there are places in the Bible that it's used in a non-technical sense. And so Jesus said, he that would be great among you must be the servant, diaconus, of all. Um, Obviously, he's not talking about the office of deacon. He's just talking about someone who's a servant. And so when you go to Eastern Europe and they read um, the word deacon, uh, they take it to be not that she served in the office of deacon, but based on the context that she was a servant in the church and therefore needed to be commended. Uh, But in a technical sense, the word can also be used. So in places like uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There he's talking about the office. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, he gives the qualifications for a deacon. And again, there are male qualifications uh, where he speaks, for instance, of the husband of one wife. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be a female deacon. Now, some argue, and some good men, I differ with them, uh, in verse 11, where it jumps right in, women must likewise be dignified. And uh, then in verse 13, or uh, it comes back to the, or verse 12, it comes back to male deacons. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife only. And so they'll say, well, he begins in verse 8 with deacons. In verse 11, he talks about women, so he must be talking about women deacons. Well, the word is gunikos, and the New American Standard is very conservative here. The word gunikos can mean wife or it can mean woman. Um. And so, uh, you know, when the word is used, context usually determines. So the New American Standard being very conservative, they just say women, and they don't say wives, and they let you figure it out. Now, if you have the New International Version and the King James Version, it's in italics, but both of those translations say the wives of deacons, the wives of deacons. Uh, So they don't just simply translate the verse, they interpret the verse for you. And I think rightly so. I think they're correct in that. I think he's talking about deacons' wives. And again, that's consistent with what we read here in the rest of the text. So um, you might want to listen to that sermon. That message would be online. Go to 1 Timothy, click on that icon, go to 1 Timothy 3, and you can listen to the sermon on deacons. And I kind of walk through that. First, deacons picked are in Acts 6, and they are men. And he doesn't use the word anthropos or anthropoi in the plural, meaning uh, men or women, but he uses a specific gender-related word. Anyway, we're out of time for today. Wish we could dialogue a little bit more on that question, but if you want to call back next week, I'll be happy to address it. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ and serve him.